Welcome to the Modern Connection Podcast, where we seek out the core mindsets and practices that help us connect with one another in meaningful ways, despite all the forces in the world trying to pull us apart and drive us toward loneliness and isolation. I'm your host and resident online dating consultant, Steve Dean, and for this episode, I'm really excited to introduce my guest. His name is Tom Quizzle. Um, he, for the last you know decade or more, has been using algorithms to solve the world's largest problems, from predicting diseases to improving the love lives of tens of millions of people. You know, casual. Tom is the former CTO of OkCupid, and... When he's not juggling data and algorithms, uh, you can find him gathering his friends to wander outdoors, enjoying all that nature has to offer. I've literally seen him walking his cat. Um, he's he's the, the type of person who brings a lot of joy to my heart. Um, in this episode, Tom and I dig into his experience building one of the world's most successful and well-loved online dating platforms, obviously OkCupid. Um, we also touch on the algorithms of modern dating apps, how they're using those algorithms to assess romantic compatibility, where they're failing, you know. Uh, and also we touch on the variables that affect our ability to establish deep interpersonal friendships, as well as meaningful romantic connections. Um, things like distance, profiles, all that fun stuff. Uh, pro tip, in this episode, we do cover the grandmother theory of sending messages on dating apps. And we also cover some of Tom's most surprising takeaways from his time spent dealing with 30 million users at OkCupid. Um, also, let me apologize in advance for the audio quality on my end for this episode. Uh, I tried out a new mic for this one, and needless to say, I was disheartened by its performance. But I promise you, Tom's insights speak loudly enough for both of us. So, without further ado, meet Tom Quizzle. The context in which we met, you were at the time CTO of OkCupid. Um, so I'm really curious, just to start things off, I want to understand what brought you to that point. Um, now, I know you went to CMU, Carnegie Mellon, um, and I don't know whether you had a sense then, like, oh, this is, I want to work in the dating industry. I, when I was in college, I didn't know that there was a dating industry. Um, so I'm just curious, like, if you could describe for me, kind of in broad strokes, what kind of, what led you to being in that office <laughs> that one day in 2011 when I walked in? Yeah, that's a, that's a really... Um... It's not a simple. It's not a simple answer. So I, I did not from the start, uh, just want to work on uh, dating. You know, I think what really, what I was really passionate about and still am passionate about is um, machine learning and AI. But more importantly, uh, doing something that really um, helps people out and and having an outsized impact. And so when I was uh, looking at jobs, I went to a career fair my senior year of. Uh, college, like a little career fair they host at, at the university. And, you know, you're looking at the Microsofts and Facebooks of the world and, and Google and, and thinking about what it would be like to work there. And I just, I just couldn't get super excited about these large tech companies because it just felt like it'd be very difficult to make a big difference. You'd be working on some little piece of the project. Um, their timelines tend to move pretty slowly. Uh, there's not a, like a very, it's, unless you're very high up in the company, you don't have a holistic view of, of a product. And so, yeah, I just, 
I started looking around for something a little different, something uh, smaller, um, earlier stage, and something that really had an impact on people's lives. And so I looked around and I saw the uh, booth for OkCupid and a, and a bunch of other booths too. But yeah, OkCupid just really struck me as an opportunity to make a big difference in people's lives because uh, the partner someone finds is perhaps the, you know, it, it depends on whether it's someone that they're going to have a long-term relationship with or just short-term, but it can be the largest decision a person makes, the most important decision a person makes. And so if you can uh, write software, algorithms, or tools that make that process better and allow people to find better um, uh, matches and, and results, uh, then that, that's a huge impact you can have. Um, and and it, I mean, it was a very small company at, at the time. It was, uh, I think, eight people who worked there. So. Each yeah, I was person. gonna ask what what year was this? Because I know OkCupid was founded in what two thousand four. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is two thousand seven. OkCupid had a pretty slow and steady uh, growth pattern. Um, yeah, so and at yeah, the time, so, were they based in Boston? Uh, no, they were based in uh, New York the whole time, I believe. Okay, I thought they were launched in Boston originally. Yeah, I think it started out from Spark Match, which was in Boston, but then they after uh, the founders um, went to Harvard and after they graduated, they uh, moved to New York and started working on OkCupid directly. Okay, and so you come in after three years of them being around, what would you say, I know OkCupid is famous now for its matching algorithm um, or many overlapping matching algorithms. Um, <laughs> what, what did it look like when you first came in? Yeah, it, you know, it um, has had, they established the flavor of OkCupid very early on. So focus on um, algorithmic matching, uh, a focus on in-depth detailed profiles, and a, a tendency towards a more educated uh, user base. And also younger, which has, you know, with Tinder, show, I mean, like these days, uh, the market is kind of segmented into 40-somethings tend to use Match, 30-somethings tend to use OkCupid, and um, early 20-somethings tend to use Tinder. So, mm -hmm. okay, Cupid has aged a little bit, I think, but but then it was the youngest demographic of a, a dating site in 2007. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like when you, you know, you're, were you hired as CTO or were you Yeah, hired? right, yeah. So so to get back to that question, I was I was not hired as CTO. I, I, I just started out as a software engineer. I mean, I was fresh out of college. It, that wouldn't have been, yeah, yeah. made sense. But um, yeah, I worked there for a few years and really uh, became passionate about the product and about building a great team. And um, so it, it, after uh, the previous CTO left, I, it was it made sense for me to step into that role and um, really help to build the engineering team and culture further. Mm -hmm. And what would you say is like the most fun thing that you got to work on while you were there? Because I know you, you have a, I think, in terms of like the engineering archetypes, my guess is that you're more of the farmer type where you're trying to like um, steward the code and make sure that it's clean and that it works and that you're like you're making incremental updates. I'm, but you can correct me completely there. <laughs> I haven't heard of the uh, engineering uh, archetypes. I, I like that idea though. I need to read about that. For um, farmers and explorers, the explorers kind of like move fast, break things, just make shit fly. Whereas the farmers are like, okay, but if we want this to be sustainable and be able to scale, then we need to, you know, reel in a little bit and make sure that we're actually, like, our code makes sense. Yeah, I guess I'm a mix of, really like to uh, 
produce uh, features quickly that users can use. So it's, I, I really like to throw something out that's 90% of the way mm -hmm. there, get people to use it, um, kind of a lean startup mentality. Yeah. Um, and then, but yeah, on, on the other hand, there are certain pieces of a code base that are extremely important and that if you make a mistake, uh, it, it'll break everything. And so you really want to be a farmer with that kind of code. So it's, it's about picking the right uh, tool for the job, I think. And so when you're sitting there now as, I guess, CTO at OkCupid, uh, at, at the time, um, was there any particular part of the site that you were working on or part of the algorithm that was like really exciting to work through? Were there any updates where you saw the algorithm performing a certain way and you're like, eh, no, this needs to be fixed? Yes, I think one of the most, uh, like like you were asking earlier, one of the most uh, interesting projects that I I worked on was uh, a project that used text uh, to help match people. So it had it identified, you know, each person writes a, a profile. It, it contains a bunch of um, text kind of explaining their interests and who they are, um, and much more detailed than most dating profiles are today. And um, people would list interests. And so uh, with a few other people on the team, this was before I was, I was CTO, uh, we worked on putting together a matching algorithm that would pair people up based on shared interests. Um, yeah, and so that was, that was very fun. And it was just so neat to see uh, and people would get a little um, notification when we identified two people who had uh, a, a pretty good overlap of, of interests. Um, and it was, you know, one of the fun things was identifying which interests would be uh, more valuable to match people on. Because obviously, if someone says that they like music, that's not a very good match. <laughs> but they're um, rarer and also more kind of interesting uh, uh, topics that if, if people match on. Like, for example, if they like a particular book, uh, that, that can be a pretty neat sign that they, they're kind of similar at a deep personality level or, or at least um, are interested in or, or like share some similar values. Yeah. I think. I, I... And so yeah, and so that was that was just really neat, and it was just that feeling of um, launching it and starting to pair people together and and seeing kind of like how happy they were when it, they went on um, dates with people who shared some deep interests. It was very cool. Is that something that the users? It's also could fun see? to see how it messes up. Yeah, yeah. Is that something <laughs> that the users could actually see, like your interests align this much? Is that something that is even still in the user presenting? No, part? it was. It was. You know, we we launched it and. It didn't really take off the way oh, we no. wanted, and so we, yeah, yeah. It's one of those earlier ideas that it it, de it depends on really. It's pretty it's pretty rare that you'll find like the number of people who actually match up on these really deep interests is, is pretty small, mm -hmm. and so it ends up being you know you put a bunch of effort into a feature that only has an effect on a few percent of the user base. And at, at that point, it's it's not really worth keeping in this part of the site. When you say it's a small percent, wouldn't that imply that you know most people don't have that many truly compatible matches, and maybe you happen to find a small percentage of people that are genuinely compatible? No, I think people have a lot of compatible matches, but um, yeah, just people it required a lot of things to go right for a match to happen. Yeah, yeah. Like people had to start out sharing a, a kind of a rare interest. Mm -hmm. And then they had to go through the whole process of having a, a conversation that, that worked out. And it was just kind of too many, yeah. too many dates to go into a successful uh, date. That's actually been one of the saddest parts of me witnessing the landscape in the dating industry change over the years. 
is like when I first started dating online, it was all OkCupid. That was my favorite app. I met over a hundred people from it. Um, and so much of what I liked about it was that you do the work of putting in all this extra information about yourself, all these additional variables, all this additional text and personal descriptors. And that actually, the algorithm did a really good job of, you know, providing a high ROI on your user input. So you put in all these different variables, all these different interests, and suddenly you start getting better and better matches. Whereas nowadays, you know, you can get onto Tinder in the span of four taps. You don't have to input any text whatsoever and you're already matching with people. And so like, what does Tinder honestly know about, you know, how well you're going to connect with another person when you've provided next to no information to them. And so I just see like this kind of degradation in the industry of the actual content that we're using to match our users together. And it, it almost makes me pine for the old days of <laughs> okay, Cupid collecting a ton <laughs> of information that users put in that's all unique to them because they physically typed out the keystrokes to do it. Um, do you see that, would you agree or disagree? Do you think that um, there have been other areas that the dating industry has like stepped up in, in terms of being able to do better matching, even in the absence of users saying more about themselves? Well, yeah, I mean, I think Tinder is, is so popular for a reason because it's, it's very successful and it's really not so much about what the dating industry has done, but it's more of a reflection of ourselves as humans. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so like, you know, this is interesting trend. Like we analyze the length of messages that people sent over, over the years that OkCupid has, has been around. Um, and yeah, we, we found this, this trend that uh, the average length of messages and the median length, you know, they, they, they've been going down uh, as with each, each year. Um, and yeah, this is like, partially it's a move to mobile. But partially it's just a, uh, uh, there's some kind of shortening of attention spans or less of a desire to write long messages. I mean, I, I wouldn't say something so broad as shortening attention spans. I don't think that's right. But um, yeah, people have a stronger expectation for instant gratification. Uh, they, they really want to be able to just write a, you know, a sentence or a few words and be able to get, immediately get on a date. And they also want to um, complain when that date turns out terribly as a result. <laughs> for sure yeah yeah so i think there's just it's, it's just a trend in society in general that people are kind of writing shorter shorter messages um, expecting faster results um, uh, kind of attention is more divided i think uh, especially with with mobile and all the possible apps and and, and social platforms so uh, yeah, the dating industry is, is adapted to that and, and produced a dating experience that really just gets to the, the very like very primal core of it, which is see a photo, do you like it? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's um, kind of what's the most instantly gratifying to people. It's the most immediately appealing. And so that's, that's what we're drawn to. Is that towards. really our future though? Is, the, what would, is, is there anything that makes you optimistic about what direction? Yeah, I don't know that that's our future. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of commentary and critiques of, you know, pe people being addicted to mobile apps and uh, basing their social, you know, their, their feeling of social well-being on the number of Instagram likes um, or Facebook likes that they have. Um, so I, I think, you know, as a society, we're aware of the, the issues and I think there's effort to, to change it. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's our future or not. <laughs> Time will tell. So I, I have a, a 
similar vein question, but a little bit different. Um, I'm, I remember when my friend who was working as a data scientist, I think at Columbia back in 2012 or 2013, he had asked OkCupid, he's like, I will literally give you 40 hours of free labor every week. Just let me see your data. Tell me what to do with it. Like, I, I just know data analysis and I desperately want to be able to like sink my teeth into it. And OkCupid was like, no, I don't think so. You can offer us unlimited free labor. We're still not going to say yes to that because our data is proprietary. It is secured. We do not give it out to like willy nilly. Um, but you had a kind of beautiful vantage point as the CTO. Is there anything that, you know, obviously what you're allowed to share that would be something that was either super surprising to you or that like caught you off guard um, just during your, I'm sure this happened like every week at OkCupid knowing that like you guys did a lot of experimentation with different algorithms and features. Is there anything that was like truly remarkable that you still remember? Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So yeah, I mean, first the first comment is like, you know, OkCupid took and takes data privacy for users very, very seriously. I mean, it's some of the most personal information a, a person can share is, is their kind of dating preferences. Um, and and so, yeah, that's that's why we <laughs> um, didn't just allow random researchers or even even researchers <laughs> with good good track records to, to work on it because it's just it's just not. Um, you know, matching the values of OkCupid uh, to do that, um, and, and same things held internally. Like we didn't, we didn't just look at the data. There was a procedure to go through, and um, it would only be used for for uh, business purposes um, or to do important important analyses. And um, obviously, never shared with third parties except in aggregate uh, like results. And so, yeah, one of the interesting uh, things that came out that just really struck me was. You know, when I first learned about online dating, I, you know, I had this, you know, as, as I was younger, I had this image of dating as like the tradition is that a guy asks a girl out um, and that, that that tradition was changing, but that was still more or less kind of how society decided things should work, which didn't feel great to me. Like I've, I, yeah, I just, I just wish it was almost like completely gender blind. People didn't even realize or care. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that kind of thing always frustrated me. So I thought, oh, well, it's online dating. So probably all of those traditional uh, expectations for how dating works are dropped. And I, I would imagine that you know, women would reach out to men as much as men reach out to women. And it would just kind of, just kind of be a gender blind um, situation, which really appealed to me. But then, you know, I, I arrived on the scene and, and tried it out. And yeah, obviously it's not like that at all. Men spam tons of messages um, to women, and women um, really don't send many messages to men. Um, and, I, and I think that's largely because of it's just overwhelming to be a woman on a, on a dating site where you're receiving all of these messages. Uh, the the best strategy for you is to look over the people who've messaged you for the most part and, and respond to the few that are that are most interesting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I was. I was just really stunned when I was looking at some of the data to see that uh, for each uh, contact that a uh, like first contact that a woman makes, uh, this was at the time at OkCupid, there were ten contacts that men were making to women, and that that just really struck me. I mean, it's just what an incredible imbalance. Mm -hmm. And so much of much of 
well, like one of the big goals that I, I had working there was to try to correct that imbalance, um, encourage men to send fewer higher quality messages and take some of the burden off women so that they could you know, look have more time to look around and um, message people they were interested in. I do remember that um, when I, like through my consulting with individuals, I've definitely frequently said over the years that like proactive women tend to reap all the rewards of online dating because they're not sitting back and waiting for, you know, the rabble to come in. They're instead isolating the variables. They're finding out exactly who they want to message. And when they do send a message, because it is so rare for men to receive messages out of the blue, uh, they tend to have a much higher reply rate. Yeah, I think I think it is a very successful strategy for sure, uh, because it's not it's not the default strategy. And similarly for men, the really successful strategy is to send a few thoughtful messages <laughs> rather than uh, send out a lot of more mediocre messages. Yeah, I mean, I think it's and correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that it generally varies based on where the men stand relative to the other men on the site or on the app. So like. I think I saw something that came out this year saying that like if you're a man in the top like 10 to 15 percent of like the attractiveness bracket on the site, then you will get the lion's share of all responses to your messages. Whereas, and you'll receive the majority of messages. Whereas men who are like in the bottom 80 to 90 percent tend to just get completely and categorically ignored across. And this is, I don't even think this was unique to just one app. I think it was like almost industry-wide that men tend to get completely ignored if they're not in the top like 10 to 15% of users. Yeah, and and the same is, is largely true of, of women. The top you know, five to 10% of women get a much larger share of the messages. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like the, you know, there's a lot of talk about wealth disparity um, and I mean, obviously that's a big problem for society and it, it really it's really mirrored also in, in attractiveness i mean um just the the effect that a person's attractiveness has on the people around them and the behavior of people towards them on dating apps is is really is really massive and people at the top levels get many many times more messages than, than people lower down which is just really unfortunate and that's another thing i i yeah, tried to work against when I was at OkCupid. But yeah, it's, it's hard when you're kind of working against more or less human nature, or at least like the societal norms. Uh, I've been so wondering it's, uh, lately definitely about, battle. yeah, I've been wondering lately about whether attractiveness and interestingness are two variables that can independently trigger increases in like match ratios and messaging ratios. Because like when I'm, and this is just from my personal experience, when I'm flicking through, whether it be Tinder or Hinge or another dating site, um, yes, I will generally are on the side of swiping on more attractive users. But for the apps that actually let me see whether these users are interesting to me and that really highlight that. So, you know, like Hinge isn't just like a swipe right or left kind of situation. They actually have you scroll through profiles. And so you're almost guaranteed to see where this person works, where they went to school and a few variables and details about their life before you make your decision of whether to pass on them. And so what I find pretty frequently is that if someone, even if they don't rank highly in attractiveness for me, if they rank really highly in interestingness, then I'll still pursue the match. Um, 
And so like if they work at a company that I've been really curious about or that I think would be really interesting to like hear just what their life has been like at that company, then like they're very likely to get a match or a message from me. And so I'm curious if you think that in addition to attractiveness, that there could be this additional variable of interestingness that dating apps could capitalize on and which many really don't because they're so photo forward. They're so, for the most part, because of that instant gratification and because of the fact that users tend to gravitate toward you know, just basic, are they attractive or not, the hot or not situation. Um, I yeah. don't see that many dating apps really trying to optimize for interestingness. They only optimize for attraction. And so do you think that there's something to be said about that, whether there's like anything you've ever found out from your data about um, whether interestingness is a worthwhile variable that dating apps could try out? Yeah, that, that's a good point. And I, th I think many people would say that, or at least some people would say that, like you, they if they find out an interesting detail about about a person or something piques their interest that's not in the photo, then, then that that would make them interested. And I, and I think that's probably true of, of some people, of many people, in fact. But what's interesting is that I think the majority of the behavior doesn't really match that pattern. There was this experiment that OkCupid did a long time ago where we, um, it used to be that there was a, a feature where people could vote on profiles and they could vote uh, one to five stars. This is obviously <laughs> um, back before like swipe right, swipe left was <laughs> such, a, such a simple and elegant interface. Oh, yeah. And so people could actually rate a user on both their appearance and their, um, their personality. And so we did this experiment where we uh, hid the profile. So we hid everything but the photo. And we measured what, what uh, votes people got. And then we compared that to the results when we don't hide the profile. And so the idea is if, if people, if users, when they're looking through, really do pay attention to the profile and read it and, and kind of decide to change a vote based on um, uh, the, the contents of the, of the profile, then you'd see a, a difference in, in the votes there. Um, and there was, there was a, an overall vote, so you could say overall, how interested are you in this person? So mm -hmm. hopefully if people take uh, the personality into account to some degree, then that would change their overall vote uh, if, the, if the text is present. And what we found was something like uh, a 96 or 97% correlation uh, between the scores with the photo and, and the text and the scores with just the photo. And so, <laughs> yeah, it kind of tells tells the story that like, yeah, maybe there are certain cases or situations where an interesting uh, personality trait or or you know someone's personality can make a difference. Um, for the most part, when people are going through <clears throat> profiles on a dating site, that's not really what's happening. They're just looking at the photo, they're voting based on that, and they're moving on. Wait, so did your experiment essentially? not prove, but at least point to this idea that maybe captivating profiles are independently compelling. I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. No, 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 it's the opposite. It's, no, it, it, okay. it, it says that, it basically says that 96 or 97% of the decision that a person makes uh, when, when they vote on another profile is just the photo. So that, wow. that profile text is just a few percent. So people took that experiment and decided, hey, let's just make Tinder then because people are helplessly superficial. 
Yeah, I mean that that <laughs> experiment points right to Tinder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, okay. This is in light of that. How about we move a little bit away from online dating for a minute? <laughs> Perhaps it's too depressing. <laughs> I wanna I wanna find out. So you you have ultimately left OkCupid um, and moved on from there. We have a fun story about maybe one of the variables that could have motivated that, <sighs> namely a certain relationship that you got into yes, that's, that's true <laughs> yes um which i may or may not have sort of accidentally on purpose played a role in instigating yes it's true <laughs> steve you you are yeah you basically arranged the first date with my my spouse so i i'm forever forever in debt to you for that <laughs> i think the important thing is that i met her through okcupid Yes, so that's true too. Even even though you know CTO of OKCupid okay gets matched to someone through a friend, it OKCupid okay is still somehow the root cause there because I only met your current spouse through OKCupid. Okay that that yeah. was one of the most satisfying dates when you can midway through a date just inform the person, hey, like I'm not the person you should be in this room with. In fact. It's Tom. <laughs> yeah, it's something I've always found so neat about you, Steve, is how how sort of selfless or, uh, yeah, how selfless you are when it comes to that kind of relationship thing. I think most people wouldn't, you know, in the middle of a date, recommend someone else, but <laughs> <laughs> you just take a step back well, and, and think about making everyone happy. <laughs> I think it's like almost a religiosity around optimization. It's like, if I already have a very clear sense that like your time could be better spent doing X, Y, or Z, then I'll generally try to recommend that you do that because I want the people in my life to be, you know, making the best decisions they can with the best information they can. And so, yeah, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> certainly a role model in that way. And I, I try to emulate that. <laughs> yeah. Like after, um, after you left and uh, tell me a little bit about like what, you know, I, I feel like for many people being the CTO of one of the most popular dating apps in the world that has led to, you know, countless millions of connections and relationships, that would be like pretty much career peak. Like you're, you're satisfied, but no, you, you, you moved on from there. And I'm really curious, like, um, what was it that kind of motivated you not necessarily to leave, but just like what, what was compelling you to go elsewhere? Yeah. I mean, that, that is a really good point. I mean, that's, it really did feel like a career peak. I mean, it just, there's just such an amazing ability to make an impact. And one of the most wonderful things about working there and, and the time after is just so many of my friends had met their partners through OkCupid. I mean, there's also the opposite side where you, you know, you, <laughs> you go to a party and you tell people what you do. And the first thing out of their mouth is, oh, let me tell you about this terrible day I had. <laughs> so, every time, but, every time. But yeah, I mean, you just have to take that kind of thing with humor because, you know, a terrible date is still a date. Like you help them find something they, they thought had potential, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, on the on the quest to something more worthwhile. And um, yeah, so uh, leaving OkCupid was, it was a very tough decision, but I'd, I'd been there for seven years and I, I just felt like I wanted to work on different areas. And so I went on to... Mm -hmm. um, uh, do a data scientist, data science role at a uh, healthcare startup. Um, and also moved out of New York City, which uh, was was never really the right um, 
place for me. Like I, I'm a very outdoorsy person. I like to be active. Um, and you like to keep your cat active. So yes. I definitely recall pictures of you taking your cat in one of those, like, was it a bubble backpack or at least on a leash in Central <laughs> Park? <laughs> yes, yeah, we take our cat out for walks on, uh, on a leash, yeah. <laughs> those are yep, priceless they, moments. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so um, Rachel and I moved to Santa Barbara to uh, kind of have a different different pace of life and, and uh, look into different career options. And yeah, so I ended up doing um, data science in the, in the healthcare industry, which I found really interesting. Uh, it's such a neat space. It's growing quickly. I, I focus a lot on activity trackers and doing things like um, identifying whether a person has particular uh, conditions, like do they have uh, diabetes or um, multiple sclerosis uh, based on data from an activity tracker that they wear, like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that kind of work was just really cool. And it kind of... You can tell them if they have a certain condition based on the number of steps they're walking or their heart rate yeah yeah uh, not not with, i want to hear more about this not with 100 percent accuracy of course but yeah with, with pretty reasonable um predictive power yeah what are you looking for is it like if they is it like a low heart rate is it like what, what are the actual variables that these things are collecting that would allow you to make that kind of a determination yeah the data you usually have is um, minute level step sleep and heart rate data and so yeah, the, the signal comes out um, more in kind of the patterns of, of how people do things. Like, um, uh, for example, diabetes often results in more interrupted sleep. And so uh, you you write a machine learning algorithm that picks up on interrupted sleep, for example, and that, that helps tell you quite a bit about uh, yeah, whether someone has diabetes. And then you combine that with other factors like, oh, they tend to have a higher heart rate and you know, maybe they're not exercising a lot and uh, yeah, you end up painting a pretty clear picture of yeah. the likely conditions for a person. Again, it's nowhere sure near hundred percent, but <laughs> I'm sure there are some fun lurking variables. Like do you have diabetes or do you have a cat that just jumps on your face three times every night? <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's certainly true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that kind of algorithm I think is pretty still fairly far away from being used, um, you know, for, for clinical diagnosis. Uh, because of factors like that. Like, it's just not a controlled setting. Yeah, I mean, I know there are, there's an app that I believe our friend Spencer had worked with that was doing, was it um, predictive analytics for depression based on um, mood changes over time? Or like, based on, I don't know whether it was like personal recordings of your mood um, or whether it was tied to some other variables, but I thought he was working with um, possible ways to like predict and mitigate depressive symptoms. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, and that's that's actually, yeah, depression is another uh, condition we were able to predict fairly well. Um, yeah, just because people have different behavior patterns, like they maybe tend to lie in bed awake for a while um, after they get up, um, and that, that gives, a, gives a fairly good signal. I heard an interesting one that was like, if you post more like bluish colors on your Instagram, that that can be a possible sign huh. of yeah, I mean, depression. You're right, there's all kinds of, Little variables like that. <laughs> Data is so crazy. I, I understand why you've spent so much time delving into it because it's so fascinating. Um, yeah, for sure. So you said you worked with this uh, healthcare company. Is that something that 
you are like are, is that where you are now are you what what have you moved on to from there and if no, there's anything else you want to share from that experience that was particularly interesting i would love to hear it because it is fascinating yeah i think i mean i think the biggest thing i would say from that experience is that you know it's kind of the classic like the healthcare industry does move very slowly and it's a very it's just I really walked away with it with an understanding for how difficult it is to integrate two different cultures. I mean, doctors and, and the me medical industry in general, just, just talk and think about the world in a very different way from technologists. Uh -huh. So it can be very hard to make even basic decisions or uh, bring a basic product uh, to market because they just they just think in different terms. Is it that and they're not thinking striking. as much about data in the aggregate? Um, no, I think it's, it's just kind of a different, different outlook in general. Like, I don't know, like what kind of one, one challenge was you, you might make an algorithm that, um, it was 99% accurate for some, some task and it's better than what's out there. And so the argument is, well, it would be an improvement clearly to, to move to this. Um, but yeah, the doctors, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to generalize really, but I, I think that there's a, more of a tendency to like co concrete concreteness. And so if um, we can't ever really promise that this is the right conclusion, we're just 99% sure, that's almost equal to being 0% sure for, for, some, <laughs> for some people and some, some administrators. And, and, and I can see why. I mean, people's lives are in their hands that they don't, they don't want uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> and like the data can always like the, the fun part of data that is not properly, you know, assessed and, you know, rerun is we could, you could come up with a thing that your computer shoots out saying we are 99% sure you are a duck. And yep. that 1% that kind of matters because if you're telling someone something that is like patently false to their eyes and senses, then they're going to wonder like this is clearly a problem with the technology, not with me. Yeah, for sure. And, and another challenge is just adoption, like, you know, trying to create a tool that helps the doctor do their job better is, is very difficult because a lot of what that comes down to is that maybe maybe it's a diagnostic problem. And so the, the tool is, is giving a suggestion for diagnosis. I mean, at the end of the day, if, it, if it's going to have any benefit, it's, it's kind of through telling the doctor that it thinks that they're wrong. And that's nobody wants to hear that. Like, data scientists <laughs> don't want to hear that. Um, and so it's and it's kind of it's interrupting to the to the flow. So it's like very important to build something that feels helpful and and usable for doctors. And that's it's quite yeah. a challenge because you know the people designing the software for the most part aren't aren't doctors, and so they don't have that that intuition. Um, yeah, and it's just it's very different mindsets. Like it's a lot more complicated than just that. But um, yeah, it's it's certainly a challenge. And so I think any any initiative in in that space really needs to have good buy-in and, and good support from people from from many different disciplines from technology from doctors from patients as well is that that's another I mean, that's the most important part is that the patients uh, yeah feel your like doctor spends 80 percent of the meeting just looking at an ipad and not looking at you then yeah exactly yeah and that's the kind of thing that doctor exactly and that's the kind of thing that someone developing an app kind of in uh, in, a, in a bubble that it doesn't isn't going to think about so that's very important, and and it makes it so hard to to innovate. Okay. Yeah, and then so, so what I'm doing now is I um, I moved on to a cryptocurrency project with a with a Stellar um, currency, and I'm 
working on a, a platform that allows people to exchange uh, assets. Uh, so different tokens that might represent um, a fiat currency or another cryptocurrency. Could you go in a little bit more depth on that? I'm yeah, curious. sure. Like for me, that doesn't like. I guess maybe start with some examples, uh, like that an average person would encounter, where they'd say like, "Oh, this is clearly something that I would want." Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, use. yeah, and I think the best use case to focus on is is what what we're really trying to solve is cross border payments. So there's this problem right now where um, you know if someone comes from India or the Philippines to the U.S. and and works and then wants to send money back to their family. They need to use a platform like Western Union, um, which is which takes a very large fee. And so you have this problem where the people who are the poorest and the most in need are also bearing the largest financial burden of anyone. And it's just really not uh, not fair. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so yeah, we have this approach using uh, the Stellar ecosystem as a as a as a backbone um, to allow people and uh, wallets to send um, send money in one currency and receive it in another currency. Cool. And so that drastically reduces the, the fees. And is this something that like, people can already just start doing or is it still in development? Uh, yeah, it is. There's, there's a number of um, community projects that, that people can, can uh, use to send cross-border payments. That will be useful to know whenever I have clients who are in different countries. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yep. I guess I remember there was another thing that I wanted to dig into a little bit because I know that when you first moved to Santa Barbara, you were excited about a combination of like co-living, co-working, and I know like the theme of the podcast. What I've been trying to get at is is what does it mean to connect more fully with people in society, with our friends, with our romantic partners, um, with our coworkers, like how, how do we feel those moments of genuine connection, of like flow? And I know that when you first got to Santa Barbara, you were talking, I don't know if it was a hacker house you were talking about or a co-living space, but I, I'm curious just if you could go into that a little bit, like your, what, what your original motivation was and what you ran into when you started trying to build it. Yeah, I was thinking of creating a hacker house for a while, and but ultimately decided against the idea. Uh, it just seemed like a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of uncertainty about how well it would go. So I, I decided not to go for that. But um, yeah, I mean, in general, it, it's been interesting comparing the Santa Barbara culture to the New York culture. I mean, we it has really been amazing to come here because uh, people just treat each other differently, like strangers. Uh, on the sidewalk, help each other out, um, or you know, talk to each other in, in a friendly, friendly way. And I, I really didn't feel that <clears throat> in New York at all. It's like you just you enter your bubble and, and try to avoid the the crazy outside from getting in. <laughs> and there's also less of a I think less of a work focus here, so people make a lot more time for friends. Um, so it's it's pretty easy to just you know, message someone and you um, meet up with them that afternoon for lunch or um, you know, get drinks. It's just super easy. And in New York, it was often, you know, you have to do a 30 minute or hour long subway ride and uh, they're busy for work or they're tired from work. And I mean, there's some of that here too, but there's, there's pretty big, pretty big difference. So that's, that's been very cool to see. The other really interesting thing I'll, I'll point out is, is just, I mean, this is probably a truism. You probably talked about this is, is um, 
how much proximity matters like to, to forming relationships like in a smaller town especially in smaller communities like if you go for example if you go to the rock gym here there's always the same people hanging out like i i don't even really climb that much and whenever i go to the rock gym i see at least people three people uh that i know and so you just you end up just ended up in these conversations um just by happenstance that weren't planned and i think that's very difficult in new york so and i think that leads to much of the feeling that people have of, of being kind of alienated in, in a larger city is that they're they're not just running into their friends on the sidewalk or at the climbing gym or on the hiking trail. That's one of my favorite things is you just go for a hike and you run into someone else you know and yeah, it's just just it's just a much better way of life, I, I feel like. For me. I do hear I, everyone's got their own interest. Yeah. <laughs> I hear frequently in New York that you know, like whatever ever happens, if it wasn't recorded you know, it doesn't matter because you'll probably never see that person again. Yeah, that's like, another even, really... even if you tried, you may still not. Like, there's plenty of times you go on a first date with someone and it's like a fantastic date. And just through, you know, the random eccentricities of both of your lives, you end up never seeing each other again, even though you both agreed that it was a fantastic date. But, you know, like they went abroad for a month, then they got a new job and suddenly they moved or, you know, a family thing came up and then, you know, it just takes so long to get back on someone's radar because you don't just get to, by happenstance, run into someone unless they're like in your building and even then you might still not see them. But you have to always make intentional time and it's effortful. It's an effortful process to be able to see even just one person again. Yeah, and so sure. it's like, a, I think, and that's partly, I'm actually curious if you've seen like massive shifts in like the online dating experience between New York and Santa Barbara, because in New York, everyone's like the, the sheer volume of attentional demands like why don't you say hi to people in the street it's because there's so many more people you run out of energy for your hellos by the time you go one block in new york and so your attention yeah. you know you have to guard it otherwise you get completely spent before you even make it out the door that day and so i feel that when it comes to like how are you choosing to capture and respect people's attention um when you're on your different dating apps. I always find that to be like a really important thing. When people get surprised when I tell them, like I'll send someone a first message that's like four or 500 words and I include my number, I include where I'd like to meet them and when I give them multiple options for like what's going on on my, you know, my schedule for that week so that they can choose to opt into any of the things that I'm already planning to do. So I try, I try to reduce so many of the variables that would otherwise potentially you know, cause them to have decision fatigue or have their attention be rerouted elsewhere. I just try to make it super clear, like, hey, you're cool for the following reasons. I'm going to be doing these things on these days. Do you want to join me for any or all of them? Here's my number. Text me to confirm. You know, I try to respect that their attention will probably flow in a lot of different places across maybe multiple dating apps, multiple other apps. By the time they finish reading, they might be getting 10 more notifications from other things. They might be on their way to work and have almost stepped into a pothole. You know, there's a number of yeah. so many things that are like running against you when it comes to like sending a single message. So I'm curious if you notice any shift from New York to Santa Barbara in terms of like, because you can reliably see people um, on a route. I, I do. Yeah. And and just to highlight one thing you were saying there, I think like, it's just amazing that you think about the experience of the other person that they're going to have when they read your message. And I think that's, that's like, something that would be great if everyone did. That's <laughs> just such a good approach. Uh, that, that's been one of be my a... most critical ones for, for the last probably six or seven years. I, I've always 
I've done two different things when I'm sending a message. One is I pretend that they're reading it in front of their friends, because this oftentimes does happen, especially for female users. Huh. They'll read the messages they receive in front of their female friends. And if your message sounds like you're an idiot or sounds like you're a creepy perv, like they're not only going <laughs> to ignore your message, but they're going to laugh at you in front of their friends. And so like you have to clear the friend hurdle. Like if they read it over the shoulder, does the friend say, wow, that was actually a really good message. You should totally reply to that person. You know, like that's the validation I want to get when I'm sending a message. And then the second yeah. thing I factor in is like, if my mother and my grandmother were standing over my shoulder right now, would they be able to say when they read my message that I'm sending, wow, I'm really proud of Steve. Like I like the person he's become. I like the extent to which he's putting care and diligence into the work he's doing and he's you know, being extremely respectful of this person that he's sending a message to. And so like if my parents would approve and this person's friends would approve, that for me is a sign that I've sent or crafted a really compelling message. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, yeah, to, to sort of answer your, your question, uh, yeah, there's a few things that are different about dating, I think, in a smaller place. Like one thing that's true about dating, but also just in general, is that because it, because it is smaller and you will probably run into each person you've um, met again, um, people for the most part are on, are on better behavior. Like they, they treat people like it's not just a one-off experience and oh, it doesn't matter because you won't see them again. Like, you'll need to see them again. So it's so really people try to treat everyone else like with respect and, and dignity and in you know, just like really nice friendly ways. Um, and of course it doesn't always happen, but there's there's definitely that tendency, which has been cool to see. Um, the other <laughs> thing is that in a, in a smaller town, uh, there's, you know, dating apps are somewhat less effective because there's just a much smaller pool. Like, you, you have this big pie and you've, you've already cut it down a lot because there's um, it's a smaller town. So the pie is smaller to start out with by a large amount. And then you, you slice to just the people using your app and then you slice to just the people who are active and you know currently looking. And so you end up with a pretty small population. So I, yeah, I think it's just less effective than somewhere like New York or um, Boston or Chicago or that, that are quite geographically concentrated. But um, but on the other hand, what you do see, and this isn't really from personal experience, but more from looking at data, is that in smaller towns, the response rates are higher. So, so someone you know is getting fewer messages because of the first factor, and so when they do get a message, they're more likely to respond to it, which which yeah. is which balances out to some degree. I think it's always helpful for people to be, that's one of the things I really try to do with my clients is like center them on like the statistical reality that they're operating in. You know, if yeah. you're dating in like a rural town in Pennsylvania, there may only be five people on any given dating app within your town. So like, and that could be lucky to have five. And it's not even to say that they're all of the gender that you prefer. So like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, that's all, that's kind of like why I got into the consulting in the first place is because I was dating in a one square mile town and I had to go on over 70 different dating apps to find a single one that had more than like two people in my town on it. Um, wow, and yeah. if there's only two people in your town. Chances are they're not going to be the ones that you want. You know, that's, even if you have 200,000 people, you still may not find that many people that really capture your interest. And so when you have a sample size of two, it's really, you're, you're not doing too good. Yeah. And that was something OkCupid tried to deal with, but obviously you can't, you can only do so much. Um, like, it, you know, if, if a person is 20 miles away 
and you live in New York City, that's a complete deal breaker. There's no way you're going out there. <laughs> they're five miles away. Let's be real. Right. Yeah, five miles away. But if they're <laughs> 20 miles away or five miles away in, in some small town, it's you know, it's no big deal. That's kind of your normal your normal commute. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the distance should be weighted more yeah, or less high, highly based on where you, you think live. Like it's, a, it's like maybe a $10 Uber to go 20 miles in a small town sometimes. And so if you're still operating based on like large city logic and you see 20, you'll set your filters, even in a small town, you'll set them to like two miles thinking that that's reasonable. Yeah. And, and also when I see people in New York, it's like I, I've matched with people on apps where like they're a really high match with me, like, okay, Cupid 99%. And then it's like, they are, you know, out in Long Island and it would be like a 35 minute Uber. And you don't yeah. think of a 35 minute Uber as being you know, like, oh, I could never meet this person. They're 35 minutes away. Like my morning commute can be 45 <laughs> minutes. But like the yeah. notion that you have having to drive 35 minutes to get to someone is like unconscionable in New York. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so funny to think about how this like yeah. distance plays such a big role. It is really interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like a, a person's world, um, like geographically at least, collapses when they're mm -hmm. in, in a place like New York, uh, just because there's so much density of people in, in that radius, there's only so much you can deal with. If you have any closing thoughts, the one question I was gonna leave you with is um, what do you see happening in the next five to 10 years that is like hopeful or positive or exciting that you're looking forward to when it comes to like dating and connecting with people? Yeah, well, that, that's a hard question actually. Hmm. And is it like, is it going into wearable tech? Is it going into voice? Because I know podcasting is getting more popular. People are listening to things. We have Siri and uh, Google Home, all things like speaking at us all the time. Um, but yeah, I, I'm actually still at a loss as to like what needs to happen next. We have, you know, scarcity of user attention on these apps and users are not sending very good content. So like, what do we actually have to do to make things better? Yeah, I guess one thing that, that comes to mind is it's always seemed to me like if Facebook were to launch a dating product, that would be revolutionary. Um, because the main problem with dating apps is, is scarcity of users, scarcity of people who are interested. And Facebook has the largest uh, user base by far with a lot of information like profile photos and preferences that are very useful for matching. So I've, I've always thought that Facebook could just create a, a killer dating app. Um, They're doing it. They yeah, exactly. South America. Yeah, I, I heard about that. So I'm, I'm very interested to see how that goes. Uh, uh -huh. And I'm super excited about the potential for it, uh, just just because of the massive user base, like I was saying. But I also wonder, I mean, people, I think people have liked, enjoyed uh, drawing a kind of a, a barrier between their friends experience, which happens on Facebook, and their dating experience, which happens on um, of dating apps and then people put a different foot forward like they'll tend to use different photos or describe themselves differently and you know they might not want their friends seeing their their dating profile um yeah it's, it's kind of like embarrassing for some people i guess and mm -hmm. um yeah or, or not embarrassing we you know we feel self-conscious about it because we're putting ourselves out there yeah and um yeah so i, I wonder how facebook will uh, how they'll deal with that that Kind of desire people to, to segregate the two uh, yeah but yeah I'm, I'm really hopeful that they they figure it out and we can you know, have the ultimate dating app that has almost every <laughs> single person in the world on it oh, <laughs> that would be so man. cool that would be terrifying <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, and, and it's and it's a big responsibility to do that. Like you have to do it right and really think about it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tom. This has been a wonderful little hour. Um, and, yeah, absolutely, Steve. It's always a pleasure uh, to chat with you. That was my conversation with Tom Quizzle, former CTO of OKCupid and now former engineering manager at Stellar. As of January 2019, Tom is now the VP of engineering at the Stellar Development Foundation. I want to thank you all for listening. And if you've got a hot minute, please leave this podcast a review so I can learn to make it better every time I publish and with every new guest that I bring on. If you want to learn more about my work as an online dating consultant, you can find me at dateworking.com. That's dateworking.com. Or just email me directly. And that's steve at dateworking.com. All right. And see you next time. Thank you.